Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. In the last season of life here at Gateway, we have had a, a, um, quite a sad time in regards to a number of people have passed away and uh, have gone into eternity. Everyone that has passed away has had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it has been a quite an incredible time. I've never seen uh, something like it in over 35 years of ministry. But one of the phrases that we have been privileged to be able to use in regards to each and every situation is the phrase, a life well lived. That all those that have departed and gone to be with their Savior had lived a life that was well and good and full. Tragically, it came to an end, but for them, they are enjoying their eternal reward. And it has been a privilege to walk with many of the families with this at this time. That a life well lived in God is an incredible epitaph to be able to say for anyone. And these were genuine and heartfelt words that we were able to issue (coughs) at this time. But what is a life well lived? When Mahatma Gandhi met the Viceroy of All India, Lord Irwin, in the the early 1930s, and was asked, how did he see, or did he see a way of resolving the issues between the British and the British Empire and India? And this is what the leader of the Indian nationalist movement replied. When your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we will have solved the problems not only of our two countries, but those of the whole world. Gandhi clearly was not a believer. He was not a follower of Jesus Christ. And many aspects of his life are open to deep scrutiny and cause great concern. But when he was in South Africa studying law, another law student, a British young man, tried to convert him to Christ. And Gandhi said, I can't follow Christianity because the church doesn't take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. He went on to say, if you were to live this out, the world would be a different place. And then he said these famous challenging words, I cannot hear what you are saying for the noise of who you are. As we start this short series The goal of it is to encourage each and every one of us to continue to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, both individually and corporately, to examine what would be the components of a life well lived and how does this happen. So this evening we're going to briskly walk through the Sermon on the Mount and then we're going to revisit it over the next two or three weeks in different sections. The Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon ever preached and preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Often we hear teachings on the Beatitudes but less on the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. So if all goes to plan, we're probably going to miss out the Beatitudes next week and jump further into the passage. You know, the question has to be asked. The Sermon on the Mount, when heard by the disciples and heard by first century believers, it went on to transform first century Palestine like nothing else had ever been transformed before. The question needs to be asked. If we were truly followers of what it says on the Sermon on the Mount, would the same thing happen where we live and work out our salvation? 
Christians have struggled with the Sermon on the Mount for over 2,000 years. For some, it has been an idealized way of, of approaching the world through a political manifesto. For others, it has been a social manifesto to live by, and whilst it can be both, it is in truth far more. It is a manifesto for us, the church, uh, to be the center of who we are, to be the center, to be the beating heart of who we as Christians proclaim to be. And it is the most incredible of passages. You see, as, as Christians, we are called to live out of a different center, to have a different heart, to have a different norm, to do and to be something or someone that is different. The Sermon on the Mount sets out the principles by which we can see ourselves and our communities transformed. It does not start, as we know, from the outside in. It starts on the inside and works out. It starts with the spiritual state of human beings and our relationship with God, who we are when we stand naked before the Almighty God. I ask this question to myself, perhaps more than I even ask it to us tonight. I know that we know this, but do we really get it? Here we see a radical, transformational, confrontational Jesus. A Jesus we don't talk about too often, or perhaps we don't really want to meet. A Jesus who wouldn't put up with double standards, who wouldn't allow hypocrisy, who wouldn't allow pretense or duplicity, and challenges those who follow him to live correctly. Yet at the same time, we see a Jesus who champions purity, who stands for righteousness, who takes the side of the underdog, and is willing to be unpopular in order to be faithful. We are faced with teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount that slice to the very center of our existence. And no wonder when it says in Hebrews 4 that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts to the very core of who we are. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount does not only doesn't take us simply to a place of challenge and weakness and vulnerability and just leaves us there. It leaves us in a place of incredible hope. It doesn't lead us to despair, but to a possibility of what could be or what we could hope for as people as of the community of God. The Sermon on the Mount leads us to a place that asks, what are the implications of this teaching for my life? What does it mean for my life, for my money, for my possessions, my attitudes to other people, my own spirituality, my own purity, and so much more? How do I relate to this Jesus that challenges me to go further and higher and deeper and live differently like no one else ever challenges us? The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest challenge to comfortable living. I don't know about you, but for me, when I read it, it gets under my skin. We read it because we know we should, but we don't really want to stop and linger on it too long because it will demand a response from us, and to do nothing in and of itself is a response. But it will at least make us think or look at life through a different sort of lens and will challenge us like nothing else. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest theologians of the last century, says these words, if we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God and that he came into this world and went to the cross of Calvary and died for our sins 
and rose again in order to justify us and to give us life anew and prepare us for heaven, if you really believe that, there is only one inevitable deduction, namely that he is entitled to the whole of our lives without any limit whatsoever. In it we see Jesus (coughs) represented as the Messiah, a savior, a holy man, a rabbi, a challenger of the norm. But far more than anything else, we see him as the new Moses. Matthew presents Jesus as the great prophet, the son of God, the divine with all the attributes and all the power, as one who challenges us to live differently. Matthew sandwiches the Sermon on the Mount in between stories of of Jesus healing people and spending time with the vulnerable, the weak, the neglected, and the outcast. And he does it for a reason. He does it with purpose. It's just not a catalog of nice stories, and we will come to that in a moment. Of course, the challenge is not in reading the Sermon on the Mount, for that is easy, and it takes about 10 minutes, depends how quickly you read. The challenge for me, and I believe for all of us, is to live it allowing it to shape us and mold us and form us and grow us in the kingdom of God in the way that he wants. The Sermon on the Mount, it is confrontational, makes us uncomfortable. Not in the sense that we feel useless, but in the sense that we see the grace of God and the possibilities of what he can accomplish through us. So I'm going to read a few verses from Matthew chapter 5, and then at the end, two verses from the end of Matthew 7. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on your stand, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then Matthew 7, 28 and 29 says these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The first thing that I would like us to see this evening is really a theological point, and it provides a background really for the whole of uh, the people who were listening in the first century. It's a very theological point. Matthew sets out his gospel in a particular way, and he has a determined desire 
to show us that Jesus is completely rooted in Jewish understanding. He represents Jesus as the new Moses. Moses, as we know, is the author of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He is also a great prophet, the lawgiver, and a participant in the Mount of Transfiguration. And Matthew does something interesting in presenting this Jesus as the new Moses. And it's fascinating to see the parallels, and we'll come on to them in a, in a, in a few seconds. But really what Mo, uh, uh, Matthew is trying to say here is that this Jesus is the fulfillment that, that, that they had waited for, that they had wanted, but his message is incredibly radical. That the Jesus that we are hearing about here was and is incredibly radical. The, the first century believers would have thought, we had no idea how radical he was. And I believe that that is the same for us today, that if we really grasp who this Jesus is and the way that he calls us to live, it is incredibly life-changing and transformational. See, just like there were five books that Moses wrote from Genesis to Deuteronomy, Matthew presents Jesus teaching through five great sets of sermons. The first is the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And please note that they all involve mountains and mountainsides. We read, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 3. A clear parallel is being set here that Jesus goes up a mountain just like Moses goes up a mountain. The next set of teaching, the second book, is Jesus' commission commissioning of his disciples and what they are to do in Matthew 10, 11, and 12. Book three is Jesus' teaching around the kingdoms in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Book four is the teaching around what it is to be a person or a people who are aware of the lordship of Christ in their lives, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. And book five is when Jesus teaches them again about the end times in Matthew 23, 24, and 25. Matthew wants us to understand here, just like the hearers of the first century, that which, which they would have got immediately, that this guy is beyond the natural. This guy is truly the son of God. He is beyond anything that we can ever hope for and imagine. He wants us to understand that this man, Jesus, is not just claiming to be a good man, but claiming to be the new Moses, not just a moral example or a man worth listening to, but someone who is far and above anyone else that has ever lived before or will live throughout eternity. If I can say this, and he was definitely not a Christian, something perhaps that Gandhi got, which I sometimes think that a lot of Christians sometimes don't fully realize. Matthew 5 verses 17 says, and this gives us another part of the argument, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Chris, why do we want to go there? Friends, if you hear one thing today out of what I'm saying, it is this. 
you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, will maybe will be familiar with the arguments that people are saying that we don't need the Old Testament, that the, book of the Bible has two halves. Well, we can concentrate on the second and we can ignore the first. Don touched it upon it last year, that the God of the Old Testament is a different person, a different character to that of the New Testament. It is not True, we cannot understand the God of the New Testament without knowing the God of the Old Testament. We don't understand him without it, who he was, what he did, his ministry and purpose without rooting him in Old Testament Jewishness, in remembering that he is a faithful Jew as well as of the Son of God. So when we are asked who needs the Old Testament, the answer is every single one of us. So as we move on, there is something I believe we need to see perhaps for the first time or afresh here in Matthew 5, and it is actually in a section that I didn't read, but I'm going to just take a couple of moments to explain. You see, the type of teaching, the way that Jesus teaches here is, again, to use this word that I'm using a lot, is incredibly radical and different. And In this section, we see that Jesus, between verses 21 and 43, he says this, you have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. And it happens six times, and it is emphasized for a reason. We will see the context, the content again, but I just want to look at the context this evening. You see, if you were a good rabbi, which Jesus was, this is how you taught you would have said, you have heard it said, and you would then quote Moses. And Jesus does this six times. You have heard it said. And then you would say, as a good rabbi, that this is what Rabbi Aaron or Rabbi Don or Rabbi John has said, and you quote them, and then you, then you would say, as a good rabbi, having heard all that, and I say to you, Because in this teaching moment, you are saying this, here I am, I'm a faithful rabbi, quoting Moses and some of the most famous rabbis between Moses and now, thus proving my credentials, and I'm giving you my interpretation. And those listening would say, man, he's a good rabbi, he is learned, he is studied, he is worth listening to because he knows what he's talking about. But Jesus does absolutely none of that. This is what he does. He says, you have heard it says, said, and he quotes Moses, and then he jumps over every generation of rabbi and says, not the words, and I say to you, but he says, but I say to you. And time and time again, he doesn't say, and I say, but he says this, Moses said it, but I say this. He actually wipes out all the rabbinical teaching in some ways in the one phrase. And what he is saying here is incredibly intentional, but it is incredibly explosive. He is standing before these devoted Jews and he is saying this, I am the one that Moses pointed to. I am bigger than Moses. I am clearer than Moses. I am the true Moses and I am the one that you have been waiting for. I am the one that you have longed for and sought Yahweh for. So much we can discuss here, but Jesus is setting himself out as second to none. 
He is second to none in his teaching and who he is. That he was truly radical, transformational, and his teaching was unprecedented. And I believe it's the same Jesus that we worship today. The same Jesus that we worship and read the incredible words that he says on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know about the Torah, but I am the Torah. I am the living, breathing word of God. Every law, every promise, every expectation, every desire, every promise is fulfilled in me. Everything you need, everything you need for life is found in me. A life well lived is grounded and found in Jesus because he is everything. It should remind us that everything we need for life is found in Jesus and when we get distracted by life, when we get the noise in our, in our faces that were so much and we lose something of our calibration, we need to come back to Jesus and realize that he is the fount of everything that we are. I, don't, <coughs> I was saying this morning was, I love the two weeks that we have off over Christmas and the New Year. Isn't it great? Don't have to come to church. It's really kicked back and wonderful. I don't know if I should say that even. But, um, but this last Christmas, I don't know about you, but for me, I found myself become incredibly disorientated. And I just didn't know if I was coming or going. I didn't know what one day was from the other. It could have been a Monday, could have been a Saturday, could have been a Sunday. And every two hours, I'd ask, I'd ask Hope, I'd ask the kids, what day is it today? And Hope would be more gracious, but the kids would say, it's the same day that you asked about two hours ago, Dad. But I found myself incredibly disorientated. And you know, I think there's a spiritual principle there then when we don't do what he says, that when we don't root ourselves in the things of God, when we don't root ourselves in being in church regularly, when we don't root ourselves in being in the word, we will become disorientated. And when we allow our Christian lives to be distracted by the noise, distracted by busyness, when we allow our walk to be diluted, we lose something of the impact of what Christ wants to do in us and through us and to us. So, for, so, not firstly, but who is this sermon for? And the very simple answer to begin with is for his disciples. This is not a sermon for the world on how to live. This is clearly for us as followers of Jesus and how to live. Sometimes I think it is easier for us as followers of Christ, sadly often it can be for me, to shout at the world and get annoyed with the world and get so disappointed with what we see in our news and disappointed by the standards that we see around us that sometimes I get so busy doing that that I lose the call to live a holy Sermon on the Mount life myself. You've heard me say this before, so... But it's worth saying again, our church movement today was born out of the Protestant revival when we protested against what was wrong with Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, and about the priests and everything that was going on. And sometimes I think there is a very real danger that we are still protesting about things rather than being a people of hope. So often as the church, so often secular society looks at the church and sees us as a group of people for what we stand against rather than what we stand for, and that is incredibly sad. We are seen as people who don't like this or we don't like that, or as a people who don't like those who've had abortion or those who are gay or those who are transgender or those who are doing whatever. Please, 
don't mishear me. I believe we have a lot to say on these matters because the Bible has a lot to say on said issues. But my heart is that instead of being seen as people who are against stuff, we should be known as people who believe in something and that something is a someone. And again, we come back to this, that we of all people must be a people full of hope that we know whatever happens, that we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. Although we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be there, that he will stand with those who mourn, he will comfort those, that we of all people have a phenomenal hope, and rather than being known so often as what we stand against, we should be attractive to people in an unprecedented way. My reference to Gandhi at the start it wasn't meant to be a cute way to start a message, but rather it carries a challenge for us, and it is this. Am I living what I believe? Gandhi said to this young Christian man, I don't see you living it. When these principles are allowed to shape and change us, the possibilities, I believe, are endless. I really do believe that God wants to see his church radically transforming and challenging people and communities around us, but not from an, an attitude of having a go at people, but being a people of hope. You know, <laughs> one of the fascinating aspects is of this narrative is that as Jesus continues to teach and preach and instruct his disciples, the audience gets, gets bigger. It starts off in Matthew 5, verses 1, with just the disciples. And by the time we come to the end of Matthew 7, 28 and 29, which we read earlier, and it says these words, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The crowds were astonished, and that's what it says in the original. Starts off with the disciples, finishes off with cry, crowds. But now, I don't know, 20, 40, 50 people have suddenly grown into a group of people that the Bible calls a crowd. Who knows? The crowd just gets bigger and bigger. You see, because Jesus has incredibly wonderful words to say. He has the words of life. He has the words that put people back together. He has insight into situations. He is the almighty living transformational God, and in our communities, we have that incredible responsibility of going out into our workplaces, the places that we play, the places that we frequent, and we have, having spent time with Jesus, the incredible opportunity to tell people, you know, this is what I have found in Jesus. This is what Jesus says about my life. This is what Jesus says that he can do for me. Nearly been in Hamilton seven years. And every opportunity I've had to speak to people about Jesus, when they ask me what I do, not one person has not been interested. And it's not that my personality is that great, as you know, but people want to know what you believe and why you believe it and how can it affect them. You know, N.T. Wright is incredible in what he says. N.T. Wright says, and the quote is again and again, the Sermon on the Mount, calls and challenges us to a radical, to a life of radical discipleship. Note when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, the peacemakers, and so on, he doesn't just mean that they themselves are blessed, he means that the blessing of God's kingdom works precisely through those people into the wider world, that is how God's kingdom comes. That's one thing to hear afresh. 
We need to live like Jesus, speak like Jesus, forgive like Jesus, give like Jesus, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. The couple of verses that I read earlier on have another incredible truth within them that I just want to unpack here as the most powerful of sermons. And it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. What is this authority? What we've read there in our Bibles is the end of chapter seven, and as you know, we, the, the original didn't have chapter endings, didn't have chapters in that sense, it just continued on. And sometimes we, we lose something of the impact of that verse by having a chapter break before going into chapters eight and chapter nine. And the, the question about his authority and how far that authority goes, well the answer comes straight away after, but so often, as I said, we lose it. But the answer is incredibly powerful when we read those stories. You see, in this chapter, chapter eight and then into nine, having said about his authority, first century Palestine, different mindset, different way of thinking. But in this chapter, Jesus cleanses a leper, then the centurion's servant, then the healing of many at at Peter's house. Next, he calms the storm, and finally he delivers a man from the demonic. Then we go into chapter nine where he heals a paralytic and also raises a girl from the dead. Are these simply stories of great miracles? Yes, but only in part, for there's a bigger truth being played out here. What Matthew did and does and is doing is this, he says these people were astonished at what he did. So how far does it go? When Jesus heals a leper in Israel from within the Jewish community, which he just did, his authority is seen over the Jewish community. Then he heals a centurion's servant, so he covers the Gentile word. He is Lord over the Gentiles. Then he heals many at people's house. He's truly Lord of all. He calms the sea. This Jesus, his authority covers nature. He then delivers a man from demons, so his authority covers the powers of darkness. In other words, this man's authority covers everything and everyone, and there is no one he cannot reach. This is the Jesus whom we worship. There is no one he cannot touch, no situation he cannot change, if we allow this teaching to penetrate our hearts and minds and actions. Conventional wisdom will not get us through life or the storms we may be currently going through, but God's wisdom, his way, his mercy, his authority will. The person of Jesus turns things around, gives hope in the midst of darkness and power over every situation. See, Matthew 5 is about challenging us about our inner life, the attitudes of our heart and how we manage them in order that we will hear the accolade, a life well lived. And so, as we start really to bring this to a close, I wanna highlight one verse that's again found in chapter five. It says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the Greek word there is teleo. And whenever I, I used to read this years ago, I always used to get a little bit intimidated by this because I know what perfect means in my language, and I know that I wasn't and not and never will be perfect. 
So I find it a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit intimidating, one of those that I, I quickly read on. But really to understand the word perfect, we need to understand, and I put that up here for you to look, is what we would call like a dovetail joint. All those carpenters here, does anybody, everybody know what a dovetail joint is? I think it was the first joint I ever learned to do in carpentry in school when God himself was a boy about 50 years ago. <laughs> and the reason that we use the analogy of a, of a dovetail joint is because it fits perfectly together. It fits in with itself, it fits in with the contact, it fits in perfectly with what it is supposed to. So what does it mean to be perfect and to unpack this word in the Greek? It doesn't mean to have all the answers, it doesn't mean to get everything right. What Matthew is saying is this, be at the right place in your life for where you are right now. You will never be most of you will never be a 70-year-old man of God. Absolutely impossible because most of you are not 70. It is being where you are and being open to God and doing what he wants you to do at your stage of life where you are. One of the things that we've done for the last couple of years is that we've run this little thing on a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning and we just get a few people together and we sit and we chat about the things of life. And it's called tea and toast because we have tea and we eat toast. But one of the questions that Don is regularly asked is this, man, how do you know your Bible? How do you know your Bible as well as you do? How do you do all this study? And Don is very open and very honest and he says, I'm in my late 60s. I've been doing this for so many years. It's what I get paid to do. I should be doing it. I should know the word of God like I do. I should be a, a good at what I study. And for, for many of the young people think, gosh, I will never be like that. No, they won't, but when they get to 60 or 70, maybe they will. The call of God to be perfect in that sense is to be where you are, and in that sense, in a right and good place. Allow God to do what he wants to do through you, and that he can rely upon you. To be the mum, to be the dad, to be the student, to be the boss, to be the single, to be the nurse, to be the lawyer, that you are, can be right now and be the best at it. That your life is as were, I am a 23 man or woman of God. Much to learn, a lot to, uh, to, to discover about this wonderful person called Jesus. But for where I'm at, I am doing the best I can under his call upon my life. He doesn't compare you with anyone else, so please don't compare yourself with anyone else. It means that we let our inner life and our outer life be joined together like a dovetail joint. Outer life and inner life coming together, not for our inner life and our outer life to contradict each other. Don't say everything is fine when you're falling apart. Don't say your marriage is wonderful or your relationship is wonderful when it isn't. Don't pretend to be part of the best family or to have everything together when you aren't because we know the truth. Don't be super spiritual when inwardly you are broken. Don't be super spiritual anytime. Be honest enough to allow our inner life and our outer life to fit together perfectly. Telling the one story of our life, this is who we are. There is a coming together of reality and challenge. Our Heavenly Father is the same on the inside as he is on the outside. There is no di dichotomy, there is no separation in him. 
The Sermon on the Mount has teeth and causes us to come before Almighty God and say, search me today and have mercy on my soul. For so often we think that grace lets us off the rigors and the challenges of a good life well lived. It lets us off the challenges of the Old Testament, but actually that's not true. Grace raises the bar. It raises the bar because it calls us to live a radical life like Christ, which we will discover more and more in the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.